From the stables in Milton Keynes, home to world-class music, entertainment, if Milton Keynes International Festival, and a whole lot more besides. This is Turn Up The Volume with your host, Nick Coffer. Welcome to a very special edition of Turn Up The Volume as we leave the confines of the stables and celebrate the joyous, marvellous event that will be IF Milton Keynes International Festival in July. Curated by the stables and now in its seventh edition, the festival brings together artists, performers, musicians and creatives from right across the spectrum and places them and their work in the heart of Milton Keynes in several venues. Or to put it another way, Milton Keynes becomes the venue itself. So in this episode, we'll hear from some of the people who'll make this festival such a special event. There's art from bike riding, funk playing band La Dinamo, Roderick Williams, one of the world's top opera singers. Lavoie will be as shy and retiring as always. Borja de Saithakore, creator of a brand new piece of dance exploring community and identity. Sarah Louise Young, who'll be performing an evening without Kate Bush and composer Jason Singh, talking about his role in the stunning art installation in Middleton Hall. Plus, we'll find time to hear from Stables Chief Executive Monica Ferguson, as well as looking at the indispensable role of the festival volunteers. Yep, this episode is jam-packed with all the colours, sights and sounds of the brilliant If Milton Keynes International Festival. And hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll be as excited about the festival as we all are. Milton Keynes taken over by world-class artists, with many events free to attend, a festival created to enable us to experience new things, bring communities together, ask challenging questions, and above all, to have fun. You can find the whole program at ifmiltonkeens.org. And when you have a look through, you might begin to spot one of the themes of this year's festival, that of going on a journey in all the meanings of the word. So where better to begin than with a band who quite literally take you on a journey? Yeah, everybody likes fun. Yeah, all right. So let's go do it. That's Spain's La Dinamo. They perform their brand of high-energy funk music atop rusty old bikes riding through the city in a concert of perpetual motion. I spoke to Cesar, their lead singer, and asked him to explain to me what La Dinamo is all about. All right, La Dinamo is a very unique and different show because we are a band moving our music through the city on two vehicles made by rusty bikes. So you don't need to go to a concert. The concerts come to you. So it's very different show for that because we move our music all around the city. It's an Eternian show and we play a, a 70s funk, very passionate and very uh, aggressive, but uh, at the same time is very happy and the people can follow us all around the town and enjoy this funky music with us. Now, I, I've seen this this contraption, this bike thing. Um, it doesn't look the most stable or solid uh, of pieces of equipment. As you say, it is put together, you know, using old bikes. Does it wobble a lot? Well, uh, yeah, a little bit, but it's part of the show. You know, the, our show, it's full of risk because of the wall of the bikes, but uh, also because of the improvisation of the music. We play not. We don't play the songs, the covers as the as the song is. We we like to improvise and and see what we have uh, around us, and then start to improvise, moving around. And yes, the the vehicles are a little bit unstable, but we can we can do it without no problems. Most of our songs are mashups, so we don't play covers exactly as the song uh, the song is. We Take, for example, the, the bass of the song and the lyrics of another one, and maybe we compose some horns and we change the chorus and, and we try to create our own songs to, to make it special And because it's so hard for us to, to find songs, exactly the kind of songs we want for our show. So what we have done is to create our own set list uh, with some of them are our songs, and, but most of them are mashups, so we make songs to create our our own songs. Surely this also means that every show is completely different because every audience is different, every audience interaction is different, but also unlike other gigs that would take place uh, in, in a specific fixed venue, your venue changes every second. 
Yeah, absolutely. Every street is different, every square is different, and the audience is, is always changing. And the most difficult thing for us is, uh, as, as we go through the town, we have to, to stop in a place in a new square every 15 minutes. We have new audience that you have to convince that they, they have to be there. And, and listen to our music. You know, in a long show, you start at the beginning, you need 10 minutes to hot the ambience and, and put the people in the show, you know? And we have to do that thing three or four times every gig, you know? And that's a, a, a very magical part of the show. Do you not have people who follow you the whole way through? So you start static and then you you, you gather your crowd like, like the Pied Piper of Hamlin and then people join you and they stick with you all the way through? Yeah, this is uh, when it happens, is a very good show because not always the people follow you. When you are uh, taking a walk with your children through the, uh, through the street and you see a show coming to you, not always you want to spend like one hour looking at that. So not everybody follows you. But when it happens, the energy says that it's going to be a great show because something is happening because all the people comes to you and follows you. In many ways, you are the perfect act uh, for If Milton Keynes International Festival. And I'll explain why on, on two levels. Firstly, I know that very much the the concept, the, the the feeling of the festival is one of a journey, taking people on a journey, perhaps taking them outside of their comfort zones. And of course, your show is quite literally a journey. But also one of the founding principles of the festival is, is to take culture, art in, in its absolute broadest sense to people, people who maybe won't always come out to it. Because let's be honest, a lot of people are intimidated by theatres. They are intimidated by art galleries. They are intimidated by concert halls. And, and the festival, where the festival is absolutely brilliant, is it brings uh, these events. And it's not just the arts, but it brings these events to people. And in that regard, La Dinamo is perfect. And I'm guessing that this is also at the heart of why you do what you do. Absolutely. This is our function. And this is why the project was created. Because we know a lot of people nowadays stays in their sofas watching TV and or just go to, the, to, to drink a coffee and take a walk. But they don't go to the theater. They don't go to the clubs to see concerts and and events and everything and art in general. So we thought about it and we, we thought that to create a project that we can bring the music to the people, uh, it's perfect to, to put some art on the street and to put some culture for the people and, and give it for free because you know that you don't have to pay anything to see La Dinamo. It must be interesting for you to look at the differences between the audiences that you get in the UK, where I know you always get incredibly well-received and perhaps also your, your local audiences in, in Spain, because, of course, we have two very, very different histories. Someone, someone today, I'm thinking, who may be, I don't know, 60 or 70 years old, uh, would have grown up with punk and indie in the 70s and 80s. And of course, in Spain, you were under a dictatorship and, and music had a, a very, very different role. Do, do you sense those differences between the two countries? Absolutely. Uh, I can assure you. I can feel that England has a, a, an amazing culture heritage because in, in the 70s you were listening to Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones and, and, and a lot of different bands playing free music, you know, and we were on the dictatorship. And we can feel it when we talk with the people after the shows in England, uh, the older people comes to you and talk about talk to you about music as they were leaving it. And it doesn't happen in Spain. The, the old people come to us and they, well, the old people doesn't come to us. They just comes to you, the, the, the young people, because they are the people that, that understand the influences that we have to play this kind of music. In England, everybody knows James Brown and 80 years old can understand why we are playing James Brown or Poets of Rhythm or any other artists of the 70s, you know. Just as a final thought, having watched your videos on YouTube and, and see what you do, it is clear that everybody at your gigs is smiling. That, that's point number one. No one has a sad face. But my question to you is, is what do you hope to achieve by these gigs, by coming to the festival, by discovering Milton Keynes? What is it that you want to do? 
I don't know the rest of the musicians of the band, but I can tell you what I want to do when I do uh, this this show. And and I'm sure I want to send a message of authenticity and a message of please do what what you have to do in this life. And if you feel in your heart that you you have to do something, do it because this is what I'm doing, and this is the message the the, the message that I'm giving to the people. I'm being authentic because I'm I'm doing exactly what I want to do. So if you are not doing the what you want to do, you are not doing the right thing, and your life is not uh, as you pretend to be. So please do what you have to do in this life. You can follow La Dinamo throughout the streets of Milton Keynes on the weekend of Friday, the 28th of July through to Sunday the 30th of July. On Friday and Saturday, the show starts at Festival Square, then travels through 12th Street to finish at Escape. Then on the Sunday, 11.30 kickoff for a journey which will start at Market Square, travel through Midsummer Place and finish at City Square. And there'll be a final show at 2.15 on the same day, taking the reverse route from the morning. More info at ifmiltonkeens.org and ladinamo.cat. That's C-A-T. It's a special festival edition of Turn Up the Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes. And in a true representation of the variety on offer at the festival itself, this podcast will now go from musicians playing funk music on rusty bikes to one of the very finest opera singers in the world. Baritone Roderick Williams, seen recently performing at the King's Coronation, has been commissioned to create a new piece of music marking the 250th anniversary of Amazing Grace, which was originally created in Olney. Commissioned by the Cowper and Newton Museum in Olney and the stables, Forever features words by Romy Smith and will be performed by a unique array of musicians at the festival on July the 22nd. I caught up with Roddy in his studio and asked him to give me the background to this new creation. The music we're talking about is a folk song that was attributed to the hymn that was Amazing Grace. It was attributed to that sometime later, who knows when. And as a folk song, goodness even knows if it was actually written or just developed or just kind of, you know, word of mouth and eventually the two become synonymous. And when I hear that melody, I know exactly, you know, the first two or three notes, I know exactly where I am. And, you know, it could be at a presidential inauguration or it could be at a funeral or something like that. And it is deeply moving. But I was brought into this project not to celebrate the melody, the folk melody that became Amazing Grace. I was brought in to celebrate the words that were written 250 years ago in this, in, in this village of Olney outside Milton Keynes. And the brief was very specific. We are, we are, and we're not even, it's a very interesting, we're not celebrating those words because those words were written by John Newton, who was a, began his life, well, began his career as an enthusiastic slave ship captain. He experienced a conversion to Christianity and then at some time, while still trading in slavery, then had a, conver- a second conversion about slavery and became an abolitionist. But nonetheless, the text of Amazing Grace and his history is something that, that needs a lot of unpacking. So, in the brief, two things were central. The first is, this is a commemorative work, but not a celebration. So I heard that loud and clear. The second is, this is to do with the text of Amazing Grace, not that melody. And that melody is so strong that we all know, if, for example, I wrote a piece that was you know, 45 minutes long, and in the last movement, I got everybody, including the audience, to sing Amazing Grace to that, that melody. That's all people will remember on the way out. They'll go away humming it in their cars in the car park, and the tune wins again. I say again because I'm a musician, so the tune always wins. I am not so good about the text, the actual text of Amazing Grace. I can, I, if I start singing it, I'll start going um and ah, but I'll be able to sing the tune to the end, multiple verses. So what we are marking is the anniversary of those words. It was very important to me that I slip away from that folk melody as quickly as possible. And I was able to do this by being an outsider. I'm not from Milton Keynes. I've got no connection with with any of the, the bodies, the museum who are commissioning this piece. And the people who thought this would be a lovely thing to observe this, this anniversary, how are we going to do it? Uh, they hired me in. And I hired in my librettist because I didn't know what story to tell. In this 250th anniversary, it would have been a very easy thing to do a kind of biopic of John Newton in musical form and tell the story of how he had this conversion and uh, on board this boat and prayed, please save me from this and I'll I'll be a good boy afterwards, all that sort of stuff. It would make a great biopic sort of cantata opera. 
But that's not what we're about. This is not about John Newton. As I say he's got a he's, he's got a checkered history. So and and there are many other people and many other responses to this text that are of interest to us right now, including responses that are anti the text. Not all voices are for it. So let's talk about the piece itself. Uh, you mentioned the words; they've been written by Romy Smith. Talk me through what we can expect at this premiere. Well, you can expect a lot of questions. For one thing, um, we had a working title, just AG250. You know, we had that working title for ages. And eventually, Romy came to me and said, I've thought of a title. I want to call it Forever as a question. So it's Forever with a question mark at the end. And you can already immediately realize that this piece is eternal. It's going to be with us forever. And then you go, or is it? So that's the first question. The title of the piece is a question. And then Romy has provided me with 10 movements. Each movement starts with a question, which she's going to ask. Um, and it's going to be you know, broadcast, as it were. These are questions that she's asked of different people in the Milton Keynes, the Olney and the Milton Keynes community, and much further beyond. She's asked for different testimonies, if you like, different reactions to this text what it means to different people, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. So your audiences will sit back and they will hear musical, my musical response to setting the text to uh, Romy's words. And they can also expect it to be local because part of the, people's, the group of people singing this piece is a specially created gospel community choir founded for the occasion, which is brilliant, just taking singers from all around the area. Theirs is a new, and I have to say, very enthusiastic response. I've been to see them rehearse, and they were on fire. Just a brilliant team of people. And then we've also got a couple of soloists, the mezzo Andrea Baker and the tenor Ronald Sam. And we've also got the ethnic majority orchestra, Chineke, who are providing instrumentalists for this. The instrumentalists include um, classical musicians. So you've got string quartet with double bass as well, string quartet. You've got, um, you know, flute and trumpet and trombone, that sort of things. But you've also got uh, electric bass. You've got a keyboard, electric keyboord that can play anything, you know, piano, harpsichord, organ, all sorts of stuff. And you've got a, a percussionist who's going to be playing everything up to and including a whoopee cushion. So you've got a wide range of styles. So when the questions come and they are answered by these, these kind of, anonymized testimonies. Romy has turned her interviews into poetry. And so I think a number of people who've, who've testified, if you can call it that, are actually going to be present in the audience. And they will recognize their words, but they have been, get this, Romified, that's my new word of the day, and will come across as a poetic response. Uh, it's going to be very exciting. So the piece of music is about the people. The people are in the audience. It's going to be challenging both in terms of the text and in terms of the music. How do you ensure that piece of music really brings out this aspect of, of challenging, of, of thinking about the answers to these questions? Well, the, the first thing for me is just to set Romy's words because uh, and, and set them faithfully so that they're audible and they make Romy's argument clear. So that's the first thing I do in the nuts and bolts of how I go about that. If I just remain true to Romy's words, which are brilliant, absolutely brilliant, then I'll have done my job. And the second thing I do is I cannot have a piece about Amazing Grace without at some point considering the folk melody that we all know and love. But it, it, it's in the major. I'm going to play it here. <laughs> I have to start with that, but I start with it really low down in a solo double bass. I think we're quite used to that piece being very exultant, very um, spiritual, very noble. And to have it low down on this bass instrument right at the beginning, it sounds already like a question mark. And it's not long, I think it's the second movement, before I put it into the minor. And off it whirdles, you know, into different keys and pastures new. And for me as a listener, immediately that last part you played is saying, something's not right here. Yeah. Some, you, but by the sheer tone of what you created there, it's saying to me, this is not the happy story you were expecting. 
Yes. To be fair, taking something from the major and putting it into the minor is is kind of one of the oldest tricks in the book. And and I do certainly acknowledge that. But it allows me to acknowledge the melody and say, yes, this is a piece about Amazing Grace, everybody. Let's let's just know that. And then let's move on. And that's kind of exactly what I do. The piece moves on. In fact, the second movement, the first time one of our soloists steps up to give a testimony, um, it tells the story of someone who's come to the England very recently, actually from Ukraine. Uh, and I thought that was a masterstroke of Romy's to begin with someone uh, from outside. Romy's from outside. She lives in Leeds. I'm from outside. I live in the Midlands. London and by birth, I live in the Midlands. And the first person she really explores in depth is from Ukraine. At the end of that movement, I was able to quote Ukrainian folk song from the Dnipro River because the poem begins in Dnipro, in actual fact, and then fast forwards to Milton Keynes and how this, this person was accepted and, and welcomed into Milton Keynes and into Olney. They're kind of wearing amazing grace like one of those shiny reflective blankets you get at the end of marathons. They're wrapped around it, this protective clothing. And so you have this um, beautiful hymn, it goes like this. I am told there's a lot of Ukrainian folk melodies are in the minor and are very, <laughs> are very sad. It does feel sad. Considering that is the river that has just flooded down in the south of Ukraine and, and, and caused, some, you know, after the dam was, it, it was, was blown up, it has this very particular relevance right here, right now, um, for those people who've managed to escape. What I can really see here, Roddy, with this piece of music, that the performance, the involvement of, of Romy, the involvement of Chinica, the involvement of all these wonderful artists, is that you've gone from a piece of music which, for me, speaks of communion, speaks of community, speaks of numbers. Amazing Grace for me is always about people and large numbers of people. And you've created a piece of music which looks at community today and people today. And I really get this strong sense, and I'm sure you'll agree, that this concert, this piece of music, this premiere will really have that strong sense of communion. I really hope so, um, because that was, again, one of the things that was asked of me at the beginning. I, with the founding of the choir for this occasion, they wanted something that people could take part in now. So we will observe this anniversary. We will ask these questions. And then in 50 years, 150 years, another 250 years, we can ask the question again. So that performance of Forever will be part of a concert performed at the Stables on Saturday, July the 22nd. More info to be found at ifmiltonkeens.org. And there's a free talk featuring Romy Smith, Martin Clark and Donald Burrows from the Open University's Music Department at 6.30 on the same evening. You'll need to book tickets for that talk, although it's free. And also later in the month, we'll be releasing an extended version of that interview with Roddy, where he talks about singing for the king, musical theatre, the importance of bringing challenging music to the wider general public and, of course, Forever in greater detail. That premiere promises to be a remarkable evening at the Stables. So let's hear from Monica Ferguson, Chief Executive of the Stables. Her and her team are behind the wonderful programme that you'll be able to enjoy throughout the festival. Now, Monica was there right at the beginning, at the very first festival, and she told me how it all came about. It was really an initiative that came out of a discussion uh, with Arts Council England and the Stables and, and also Milton Keynes Gallery, who at the time were the two funded organisations in the city around the fact that Milton Keynes was growing at a huge rate and was on track to be one of the UK's largest cities and yet they felt there was a lack of cultural investment. It was the Stables' 40th anniversary in 2010 and we had this discussion in 2009 and I said, look, I've always wanted to bring a Spiegel tent to Milton Keynes like take the stables on the road. So I, I, you know, for years I've gone to Edinburgh Festival and the Fringe Festival and the Spiegel Tent's always a place of magic for me. It's a Belgian mirror tent, great for comedy, cabaret, circus, dancing, really flexible space. And uh, so I said, you know, the stables could bring Spiegel Tent and then we could build a multi-arts festival round about that and actually just do lots of different things a lot in the public realm. Uh, do it as a pilot. See if, see if it's if it works, if there's any interest. So the Arts Council said, we love that idea. And uh, the gallery said, why don't you 
it's your anniversary, you direct it, and then we'll see where it goes. And it was, to everyone's delight and joy, a massive success, a lot of work. And at the end of it, the, you know, Milton Keynes Council and the Arts Council said, would you do it again? And I said, well, maybe the gallery would like to do it. And the new director said, no, 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 you've done all the hard work. You've done all the learning. You've got all the database now and, and, and you've been through the pain. So you carry on doing it and we'll support you and your future efforts. So uh, it kind of grew from there, really. And here we are about to deliver number seven. Uh, and you mentioned there the roots of Milton Keynes itself. And this is why the festival sits so well, because Milton Keynes was founded, for me, on, on a number of principles, but primarily on on community, on people being part of a, of a community where they could live well and enjoy life. Also, culture was very much at the heart of the early days of Milton Keynes. And when you look at the festival today, for me, that's what it does. It turns Milton Keynes into this into this big canvas, incredibly varied canvas, full of culture, full of arts, full of things to challenge you, full of things to take you out of your comfort zone. And that really brings the Milton Keynes community and the wider community together. Yeah. And, and you know, right from the start, when we started to conceive it, we conceived of using the city as a stage. And a big part of that was a commitment from us as cultural organisations to take artists and go to places where people were and people who might not ordinarily come into an art gallery or a theatre or a, a concert hall. And so from using shopping centres to uh, doing stuff in the streets to using the Tree Cathedral, and it became the sort of, the, the mantra really was to show a different side to Milton Keynes. You know, it's famed for its concrete cows and its roundabouts. And actually, it's one of the greatest, greenest cities in Europe. And so actually it's parklands became a big feature of that as well. So the, so there's a lot of stuff that happens within the city centre footprint, but in the build up to festivals, working with artists within community settings has become a huge part of what we do. So the place between project this year with Rebecca Louise Law and Jason Singh, for example, has a huge community involvement in doing it. So those artists have been working with everyone from the Hindu Association to the Sikh Gudwara, Camp Hill communities and the YMCA and beyond. And it's a really great way of involving people from very, very diverse communities across the city in the festival. And of course, that's key because we can talk about diversity, but doing diversity is a whole different matter. And and with this festival, you've got diversity of acts, diversity of origins, diversity of styles, diversity of genres. It is as diverse in every possible sense as it, as it possibly could be, which leads me to this, Monica, because how do you glue together a programme that ranges from men on bikes singing uh, to cows, uh, to art installations, to well-known folk singers, to to Turin breaks? Can you do that in 60 seconds? <laughs> well, I think the first thing for me is creating extraordinary experiences. I mean, we don't actually call it an arts festival because it's very much about creating memories, surprising people. So there's always a kind of eye to that when we're booking artists. And then looking at commonality between some of the things. And actually this year, the themes that kept bringing this together were taking journeys, whether those were physical journeys, you know, following the bikes, whether those were emotional journeys, you know, doing some of the stuff that is, is it, it, you know, like Place des Anges uh, with the angels. It's a very emotional piece to, to be part of. Or whether it's a kind of educational journey. You know, we do lots of talks, discussions, so taking people on a journey. And even things like uh, kids, for example, there's a lot of environmental themes. So underpinning a lot of the um, enjoyment and the entertainment, there are opportunities to learn as well and take people on that journey. And not only to take people on a journey, but also to take them out of their comfort zone. Hugely taking them. I mean, that, and that's something that actually we've noticed as festival has gone on. People trust us more. They're far more likely now to do something that is completely out of their comfort zone, like walking through a woodland late at night in the dark or doing something that is not just going and sitting and watching a show, you know, something that's a bit more interactive. And that's the specialness of the festival. If you take a chance on something, you very often find yourself with those extraordinary memories and and you kick yourself if you've not been it because everybody's tweeting about something that they've done or, you know, that, that just you would never have thought of doing. So there are so many opportunities to do stuff, whether it's watching cows, real cows in the city centre, um, sitting on a gilt frame through to walking through a woodland at night, through to 
following bikes. There's so many things and ways that you can get involved. And then, of course, the beating heart of it all is the Spiegel tent, where you've got some great comedy, music and cabaret um, to, to kind of play with, really. There's Monica Ferguson, Chief Executive of the Stables, who I suspect will be looking forward to a few days of peace and quiet once the festival is over. And peace and quiet is certainly something you'll not be getting if you go to see La Voix in the Spiegel tent on the 29th of July. Comedy, songs and a lot of mischief to be expected when La Voix brings her brand new show to the festival. She's currently performing on a luxury cruise ship and sent me this note from the high seas. Hello, my darlings. It's me, Lavoie. Now I am currently cruising the oceans. Oh, I adore cruising. You'll often find me cruising. Big ships, small ships, friendships, relationships. That's my life. Queen of the seas, they call me. And I'm currently touring around the British Isles on Britannia. You're probably thinking, Lavoie, who wants to do a cruise around the British Isles? In this heat wave, oh, it's been like the Caribbean, but with fish and chips in every single port. Now, as well as touring all around, on the ships doing my one-woman show. Not only will I be appearing on television shows throughout your living rooms, but of course, as every year, I love to tour the theatres. And this year is no different with my Red Ambition Tour. You see, Madonna is coming back out of the woodwork, touring again this year. I mean, God love her, she's barely recognisable as Madonna, is she? All that stuff she's had injected into her face. But if Madonna can do it, Lavoie can do it. So Red Ambition Tour is my most ambitious tour to date. Expect all the greats from Dinah Ross to Madonna to Bonnie Tyler to Judy Garland, Liza Minnelli, Shirley Bassey, you name it, all the greats are in there. Because this year, it's all about the comebacks, isn't it? Dinah Ross did Glastonbury. Yes, itching to get pitching. She was You'll never find me camping. No, I'm not a camp person at all. But good on Dinah Ross at that age for getting out there in a in a tent and performing at Glastonbury. Madonna's back. They're all making a comeback, aren't they? Shania Twain, S Club 7. You name it, they're back out there. And it's Lavoie's turn as well. So I'll be exploring when is it right to give up? And should you give up? And in my opinion, never. Maybe it's time for your comeback. And when I'm coming to your local town, maybe I'm going to select you to see you're in a diva. What have you been hiding all this time? And could you be the biggest celebrity of your local town? Yes, it could be Beryl is big in Birmingham. It could be Sharon is huge in Southampton. Or maybe it's Melvin is massive in MK. MK, you say, Lavoie? Yes, darlings. My new tour is exclusively debuting at the IF Milton Keynes International Festival. Yes, the first ever performance will take place on the 29th of July. That's the date to pop in your diaries. And I'm so excited. I will be blowing the roof off the Spiegel tent as part of that fabulous Milton Keynes Festival. I will be coming with my live band, Merch, Steve, Joanne, all the Lavoie family will be back to give you the night you will never forget. So make the effort, put on your glad rags, get on the bus and come down and see me. You will not want to miss this show. And failing that, you might find me on some back channel on Tipping Point in a couple of months. I'm never going to stop working because life's too short. Never give up. And that's my advice to you. Never give up. Book a ticket. I can't do everything for you. It's time for you to do some things for yourself. Lavoie Red Ambition Tour on sale now. Bye! The Spiegel Tent is one of the heartbeats of the festival. You can see Lavoie there on July the 29th. Tickets available at ifmiltonkeens.org. And don't forget, while this episode is very much focusing on the festival, the Stables has loads of great gigs too in July. Head over to stables.org to find out more. Now, I did warn you that this episode would be quite the journey, so let's move from the raucous Lavoie to Urja de Saithakore, one of the country's leading practitioners of the Katak form of dance. She's created a beautiful new piece of work for the festival called Deva, which looks at the complexities of community and identity in a playful style, grounded in classicism, but also with a very modern twist. You can see the show for free on Saturday the 29th and Sunday the 30th of July. I spoke to Urja and started by suggesting to her that it really is the theme of identity which underpins this work. Absolutely right, uh, Nick. Deva as a piece, uh, and it has again a two different identification to that name. So Deva in Indian culture means uh, god or goddesses, deva, devi. And in English, we can also say diva. So we have left to the audience to kind of identify 
how they want to speak that um, title as well. So the identity is absolutely at the core of the subject of what we are trying to present. It's about how one relates to their identity. What do you think our identity is? What we want to say our identity is? In a, in a very nutshell, if I say my two kids, my son says that he's British Indian. My daughter says he's, she's Indian. And uh, they both are born and brought up here. But how do they they see their identity being viewed is a very interesting way for me to create a work. And that's that's the core of the subject. And it strikes me that the whole conception of this project can be seen on two levels. So on the one hand, you've got the internal level, um, challenging notions and stereotypes within your community, how you dress, how you dance, how you look, how you identify yourself. And then, of course, you've got the second level, which is someone like myself looking in and challenging my stereotypes and my notions. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely correct. Uh, as an Indian classical dancers, uh, from the within the community of Indian classical dance, the, the traditionalists would expect us to wear certain kind of clothing. They would expect a certain kind of behavior when we are in the public uh, watching a classical performance. And anything else is almost kind of an unaccepted. And when we were creating the work, that was actually the starting point of working on the piece is when I always kind of used to speak with my students, they used to constantly tell me that, but why do we need to do that? And I said, yes, I agree. And you want to change it? I completely agree. Uh, and I would say, get into the system to change it. But they also had a problem to go through that system of going into that notion of how people perceive them within their community. And then there is, of course, an outer perspective of how people will view you when they see the color of the skin you are of or what kind of clothing are you wearing. And I remember coming in this country and I was wearing jeans and one of our relatives told me that, oh, so you are allowed to wear jeans? And I was like, who's going to give me permission? Just because I've come from India, that does not mean that I don't wear jeans. Or So that sort of viewing how, how people view you is quite very, very interesting perspective. I recently had the pleasure of interviewing uh, Raghu Dixit for uh, a previous episode of, of this podcast. And of course, he was brilliant, as I'm sure you know. And Raghu was talking about his, his classical training, his classical dance training, actually, his classical upbringing uh, before he went off to be a scientist and before he went off to be a singer. So he said he's had quite a history. But, but what was clear was the challenge he faced in becoming perhaps a bit more westernized, in changing some of the traditions, challenges from within his own family, from within his own community, when perhaps he did things a little bit differently. Is this common? It is very common. It is very common. I have been very lucky to be surrounded by the gurus, the teachers uh, and the parents who have given me the full freedom to to express myself the way I am. But at the same time, they would say, you should try and behave in this way when you are in this kind of atmosphere. It's almost like an office culture and non-office culture sort of thing. And I have tried to have the same kind of dialogues, which I kind of pass on uh, to others. But historically, people who have been studying from a very traditional uh, format of learning Indian classical art forms that may it be dance or music or instrument, they they do have certain way of presenting their work and they, they do have an expectation of how you should be viewing that work. I don't believe in disrespecting the art forms, uh, but at the same time, I am a believer of pushing those boundaries. So what I always tell my students is that let's learn the boundaries and then we try to break them. Because if you don't know what the boundaries are, we don't know what we are breaking. So learn the boundaries and then break them. And in that regard, this project fits in really well with the festival, because I know that a big part of the ethos this year has been around being on a journey and also going a little bit out of your comfort zone. So what you're describing there, Urdu, is that you yourself and indeed your dancers are going out of a comfort zone, going out of a cultural comfort zone, going out of a dance comfort zone, going out of an art comfort zone. And seeing what lies on the other side, which may or may not be good, which may or may not be better, but at least you've got on that journey. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just not uh, 
the dancers and myself it's also the collaborators uh because the 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 key collaborator hitin patel who is an artist uh works with all kind of visual and photographic mediums he is also uh he's he's interested in working with the identity on its as a subject and he has been exploring identity in all different levels so he was also pushing the boundaries of working with the dancers and the text the composer whom i was working with has never ever worked with text uh and the way uh hitan and myself was asking him to compose the music was quite challenging for him the costume designer again she is someone who is an amazing artist but has never worked with the texture of what i uh, what i was asking her to work with or the layers which i was asking her to work with so i think each one of us each one participant collaborator artists have been challenging each other by being in that surrounding and pushing the boundaries so i've just realized you you're actually teasing us because you're giving us all of these little little insights little snippets of what to expect so now we need to know exactly what we're going to see or joe what what is it you're putting on what will it look like okay so deva is the piece of work which uses text music movements uh you will see a work which talks about the identity identity of these four dancers whom whom you are seeing perform in front of you it is their stories it is their personal stories which have been extracted from a very similar interview which we did with each one of them individually and extracted their relationship with the language and we are talking about language we are kind of combining that with the language of dance and how it is being challenging the notion of how the dancers are perceived in the wider sector as person of color person of indian classical dance person of being maybe second generation of immigrants or someone who thinks their identity is completely different from their parents or thinks their identity is similar to their parents and in that regard every dancer is you every part of the show is you because people watching everyone's going to react differently to what they see and and that in effect is a metaphor for your life because um you live under the shadow of stereotype misconception uh, positive views you you have all of this uh, around you all the time and that's going to be what happens when people come and watch this piece isn't it yes yes absolutely they will i believe uh, very strongly that anyone who will come and see uh, and view this piece will take something very different with them but definitely take the sense of their identity and will steer up the thought process in them which talks about their association with their language it can be body language it can be sign language it can be any kind of language or spoken language they will have an association with their generations and how they are going to relate with that so there will be something very different for each one in the audience to take that experience with that And you can see Deva at the Milton Keynes Rose that's in Campbell Park at 11am and 3pm on Saturday July the 29th 12:30 and 4:30 on the Sunday and both performances on the Sunday will be interpreted in BSL more info about Urja can be found at pagravdance.com Now, if there's one element without which this festival couldn't function, it's the volunteers. They quite literally underpin the whole event. We'll hear from Sue Pardy, one of the volunteers, in a moment. But first, here's Melanie Beck from My Milton Keynes, one of the festival's sponsors, and they look after the volunteers at the event. Milton Keynes is such an ambitious city. It, it every year it finds new ways to extend its. reach in the community culturally historically in its infrastructure in just the way in which it operates uh, to try and really touch and imprint different things into the community of Milton Keynes but because we're now a city we don't just look at Milton Keynes in terms of the community we really aspire to bring in the wider population the villages northampton luton and encourage people to come to Milton Keynes and see just how much we have in so many different areas to offer people who visit 
My Milton Keynes represents business. That's the whole reason we're there. We're funded by business. We're actually voted in by businesses. And so at the heart and core of our work, it's representing the voice of business. And that's not just the business owner. It's the 45,000 people who come into central Milton Keynes every day to work and whose families obviously are part of that community of business. So then we look at how we can be involved in the festival because there's lots of different activities going on and some of them are there for a few days, some of them for the whole of the festival, some are just one-offs. So we want to try and ensure that we are a part of the festival for the whole 10 days. And we do that by sponsoring the volunteers. They're very important to us because some of those volunteers may work within the city centre or have worked within the city centre. It helps us in spreading the word of the work of My Milton Keynes and how it represents business in, in the wider context. And with the volunteers, it, for us, it gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling of being involved with our audience, our community. It brings people in from all over the region. And having them come in and be welcomed by people who know Milton Keynes, who live in Milton Keynes, who are as passionate about Milton Keynes as we all are, means that we can give them a really, really good experience, really rather akin to the one everybody talks about from the Olympic Games in 2012. The volunteers made that experience. And we feel with Festival and My Milton Keynes, we're able to sort of recreate that feeling of warmth, um, excitement, engagement, and putting our arms around people that don't know Milton Keynes and saying, hey, you know, this is a great place to be. Here's Sue Pardy, one of the stable mates, as they're all called, that you see every time you come to the stables and who'll be working night and day to make the festival enjoyable for everyone who comes along. The reason that I volunteered was that I was looking to do something over and above my work and I wanted to do something fairly local, local to Milton Keynes. There is a local animal charity and I thought about volunteering there, but I realised quite quickly, as my husband did, that I'd probably bring all the waifs and strays back home. So that wasn't a very good idea. And I remembered that I used to volunteer years ago uh, when I was a teenager at the Blackpool Opera House in the box office. And I loved it. I did it for a couple of summer seasons. We had cats and cannon and ball, I think, if I remember rightly. Uh, so very different audiences coming to those shows. But I really, really loved it. And I think the stables had an induction at the time. So I signed up for that, went along for the induction and I'm still there eight years later, enjoying all the different shows and different experiences that each day brings. I think it's a wonderful venue for the eclectic nature of different acts. What I really love the most about being a stable mate is the community. So I've made lots of friends. I know lots of people now. Every night is slightly different because you get a different team. But invariably, I always know at least two or three people, which is nice to have a little chat um, before the performance and the show. I like being able to support and give my time to such a wonderful charity. The festival is coming up and that's uh, quite different to regular work at the stables. The main thing is we've got so many different acts on at the same time. We've got different venues across um, Milton Keynes City. And as a body of volunteers, that means we need an awful lot more people than there is every single night at the stables. So usually at the stables, it's about 20. And we probably need, I don't know, perhaps 50 volunteers per day, at least for the festival. And with that brings different people. So people that you've not met before that don't volunteer at the stables have just volunteered for the festival. You might get people who are regularly doing events such as this. And it's just a really, really nice band. And if the weather is brilliant, which it was two years ago, fingers crossed for this year, um, it will be the same again. I do remember it was very hot and there was lots of photos of me with my hat on because it was so hot. But it was brilliant and it brings people out. The weather does help to bring people out to um, discover the festival who perhaps haven't heard about it before. And all of the different acts across the um, breadth of the city mean that there's something for everyone. There's something for children. There's something for the family that brings us all together. And you can find out more about becoming a volunteer at the stables 
by heading to stables.org. Another of the many great shows you'll be able to see in the Spiegel tent is An Evening Without Kate Bush, written by and starring Sarah Louise Young, who many of you will likely know from Fascinating Aida. She's wonderful, as is this show, which, as you'll hear, is much more than a tribute show in the old school sense. She explained to me what it is. An Evening Without Kate Bush is really a love letter to her fans as much as it is to her music. It's not a traditional tribute act. We sing all the songs that you would expect, but we put them through the lens of the fans' experience. And because you've had this incredible over 30-year gap when she wasn't performing live, you find this amazing army of fish people, which is the term they use for her fans, uh, named after her record label, who just have this incredible connection to her music. What we've discovered over the last few years is that the non-fans seem to enjoy it as much as the fans do. So we describe it as a chaotic cabaret cult and it's joyful and anarchic. It's a clown show as much as it is a concert, a gig, a cabaret. It's interactive, it's immersive. So it's kind of hard to describe and people have definitely come out and said that is not what I was expecting but it's so much better. It's immersive, it's an experience Um, And it's made with love, so much love. One of the things I do at the top of the show is I invite people to tell me their favourite Kate Bush song. And from that, we get these wonderful stories of people's encounter with her music. And then I weave those stories into the show. The inspiration for this show really came from its co-creator, Russell Lucas. We were both massive Kate Bush fans and we'd already made a show about Julie Andrews called Julie Madly Deeply. And although it was a really different show it began to explore the fans' relationship with an icon. And I was touring Julie Madley Deeply in Australia. And just before I left, Russell gave me this incredible biography of Kate Bush's work called Under the Ivy. It's by Graham Thompson. And I read that, and it's a wonderful account of her process in the recording room. And I just fell deeper and deeper in love with her music, like all over again. You know, I'm a child of the 80s. I totally grew up on Hounds of Love. Those songs are in my body. Uh, They're in my blood. The inspiration for An Evening Without Kate Bush is love of her music, genuine devotion, and a real respect for not just the body of work, but the many elements that go into it. You know, an amazing singer, an amazing songwriter. You know, The Man with the Child in His Eyes was written when she was 13 years old, which is just unfathomable to most people. But also her humour. She did all of those videos with the comedy strip performers And there is great warmth and humour in the show. So it is respectful and it's funny because I think she is a a funny, brilliant, profound artist. I went on to put it to Sarah that Kate Bush is actually now more relevant than she's ever been. As a super fan of Kate Bush, it is amazing to see that she is in the public eye more than ever. And I think she's relevant more than ever. She is an older woman who is still producing and making music. She is highly prolific and she is visible and that's inspiring for a lot of people. But she hasn't ever gone away. She has been recording for over five decades and this show was created before the Stranger Things phenomenon. For those of you who don't know, uh, Stranger Things, which is an amazing series on Netflix, decided to feature one of her songs, Running Up That Hill, not just in the show, but as a major plot point to the show, no spoilers here if you haven't already seen Stranger Things. So the beauty of that is that a younger generation of fans have come to the work and we've definitely seen more younger people coming to the show. Um, And it's so lovely to think that a whole new generation of listeners are getting to explore her extensive back catalogue. Also, she's influenced so many other artists. People like Florence and the Machine have been very public about citing her influence in their work. And I think that's one of the things. You listen to some of those tracks back from the 80s and they don't sound historic. They don't sound retro. They sound like they could be written today. And I think that's because she has kept evolving as an artist. She's kept really looking for the new musical worlds to explore the Fairlight, which is responsible for that wonderful kind of uh, smashed glass sound that you hear in Babushka, there were only four of those machines in the country and she was using one of them thanks to her friendship with Peter Gabriel. So even back then, she was really at the height and the front of exploring electronic music. And today as well, you know, she's working with rappers, she's working with artists that you might not think they would be Kate Bush fans. But, you know, if Kate Bush calls and says, do you want to play on my album? I think you probably say yes. Sarah Louise, finished by telling me what you can expect when you go to see the show. An audience coming to see An Evening Without Kate Bush can expect a huge warm welcome 
whether they're super fan fish people, whether they know one of her songs, whether they even don't know any of her songs. The show is like a warm hug. It's funny. It's silly. It's full of love. Uh, it's full of a little bit of danger for me because I never know quite what to expect and who's going to be in the room. Uh, it's musically satisfying. You'll see a lot of costume changes. <laughs> You'll definitely see me leaping around like a lunatic. Um, but mostly it's a celebration, a celebration of Kate Bush's music, a celebration of her fans, a celebration of her legacy, and absolutely a celebration of the people who choose to be there in that room on that day. Sunday, July the 23rd in the Spiegel tent for an evening without Kate Bush. Tickets available at ifmiltonkeens.org. From the stables in Milton Keynes, this is Turn Up The Volume. So we featured Men on Bike singing funk, a world-class opera singer, dance comedy song, and let's finish with this stunning creation, sitting right in the heart of the festival in Middleton Hall in Centre MK. Rebecca Louise Law's The Place Between has been commissioned by Centre MK in collaboration with If Milton Keynes International Festival. Rebecca Louise is known for creating immersive installations with natural materials, and this creation will emerge with the help of the local community, who will donate plants and fauna which Rebecca will then turn into a huge hanging garden. Completing this journey through the senses will be a soundscape created by sound artist Jason Singh. And there's quite a story behind that, which we'll hear in a moment. First, here's Kevin Duffy from Centre MK. So Centre MK has been involved with the International Festival since its inception. And we've actually been a headline sponsor since 2016. The International Festival creates Milton Keynes as a stage. And we are pretty much the heart of that stage, being a unique shopping environment in Midden Hall. So from our point of view, it's really important to get involved in the festival because it, it allows everyone to see great pieces of art inside a shopping centre, which is not something that you usually find. And it really blurs those lines between shopping and art and experience. And for us to be involved, it's hugely important for us to create that experience. And creating that connection between art and shopping really enhances the customer's journey coming into Milton Keynes and the shopping centre. It provides an amazing experience for them. I spoke to sound artist Jason Singh, who talked me through the spirit behind the installation and explained to me how he'll be capturing the sounds which will accompany Rebecca Louise's art. The experience for me is really a kind of a symbiosis between the visual world and the world of sound. It's dried flowers, it's immersive soundscapes, and the thing for me is that I wanted to create a headphone experience so that when people are actually in Center MK and they see this huge visual installation of, of, of hanging dried flowers, I wanted something that would take people through sound into a world where the sort of the ambient sounds of the center disappear and you're you're kind of immersed, you know, visually and you're immersed sonically. So the so the idea is is to kind of create immersive surround sound soundscapes that have all been derived from plants and plant biodata. So there's a number of tracks that people will be able to listen to that have been derived from different plants, working with different organisations, communities, individuals around Milton Keynes. And yeah, to kind of give people this immersive experience of of music, but that has been derived from from plants. Last time I was in my garden, Jason, I, I didn't hear any sounds coming from my plants and trees. Uh, I know that you talk about this biofeedback that, that plants give. Just give me a, a sense of, of what that actually means. Because for me, I don't hear any kind of waves or sound emanating from a plant. Sure. Well, all living things generate electricity. And so what I do is I use a technology that through sensors, you attach those to the, to the, to the tree, to the leaf, to the roots, and it picks up these tiny fluctuations of electricity that are being created by these living things. And then in real time, it converts those things into pitch, into notes. So you're not actually listening to the tree or the plant as such with your ears, but what you're doing is that you're listening to a translation of its communication around itself um, through a technology. So I attach these clips to a leaf or to the bark and then I turn the machine on and then that is then connected to my computer which then records that information and then it converts that information into MIDI into pitch. Um, I then come back to my studio and I then run that information through synthesizers, through effects, through drum machines um, and so all the melodies are created using the data from the plants. So in that way this is no different to all art because art is fundamentally 
an artist's view of the world they see. So you're getting this feedback, you're getting this data, which you're then putting through all of your complicated stuff there that you described, and it's coming out um, as the Jason Singh version. So, so this is this is art. This is how you see the world and also actually hear the world. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but the world itself is actually very musical. One hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, as a musician, I, I, you know, I see frequency. I experience frequency um, in in everything. You know, not necessarily just uh, music as such. So for me, yes, it's exactly what you're saying. It's an interpretation. It's my view and my take and my perspective, you know, on the world that I'm in, but not just externally. It's not just an observation, you know, or recording of what's happening outside. It it very much informs my inner landscape, my inner environment, you know, and kind of helps me to understand the things of life internally and, and externally. I wonder whether part of the aim of this installation is to show us all that we need to look beyond what we see in front of us and what we hear in front of us, because you're going to go into the shopping centre and your first reaction is going to be, wow, this looks great. And then as you explore the installation more, you're going to hear your sounds. You're going to be immersed in a whole different way. And maybe that's what this is trying to show, that actually the world around us is really interesting. And it's like my granddad used to say, always look up. Wherever you're walking, always look up and look even higher because, because you know, if you're walking around a city, look up. Don't look at what's in front of your eyes. And, and maybe this is part of what you're trying to achieve, to, to give us that sense of of looking beyond and i know the whole festival's around a journey and and going out of our comfort zone is that part of what you're trying to achieve definitely i mean the the piece is called you know the place between and it really is about kind of i guess the soundscapes you know um for me are a kind of are a bridge that sort of it's you know it's not just the music itself but it's it's the questions and the discussions that these things raise. When I was at Center MK doing the data recordings, you know, of loads of different banana plants, yuccas, baobab tree, banyan trees, what was incredible was that people would stop and they'd be like, you know, they see me attaching sensors to a tree with my headphones on. Like, what what are you doing? You know, and the conversations that we had were profound, you know, and it was brilliant. It was, you know, a normal day in a shopping center, people's sort of inquisitiveness and interest but not just for like, that's something over there. You know, everybody spoke to it from their perspective of, yeah, you know, nature for me is this. And, you know, I have plants or I have trees. And to me, that was really what this work is about. And without meaning to sound too controversial, the, the worst kind of art for me is art that happens in a silo, in a bunker, one person's view of the world, which doesn't include the community around it in whatever form that may take. And of course, this kind of installation, indeed the festival as a whole, really focuses on bringing the communities inside, involving the communities and and, and really touching on the wonderful diversity in all the senses of the term of, of the people who live around the installation. Yeah, very much so. The involvement of the people of Milton Keynes is paramount to this project. You know, it's not just about me going in as an artist and going, here you go you know, here's experience what I've made. It's very much a collaboration between myself, by the people of Milton Keynes and by their plants. That relationship and that collaboration then going back into the work is paramount, you know, so there's a sense of ownership, there's a sense of respect, there's a sense of um, inclusion. And yeah, you're right, you know, we can sit there chin stroking over, you know, an object or a sound or whatever, and it'd be a very exclusive experience. But I'm a firm believer that, you know, creativity is for everybody. And I don't mean it rather in the sense of high art, low art, whatever art. I just mean art itself. We all are creative beings. We all have, it's the creative act that has created us. I always like to sort of um, see that art is for everybody. And so that whatever I create, it's really important that it's seen as a, as a creative experience for everyone. And fundamentally, it's going to be absolutely beautiful isn't it to be honest with you i'd say beauty is the underlying thing in all my endeavors i strive to make work that has beauty in it and if it doesn't then i i don't feel like i'm doing what i want to do and so yeah i i wholeheartedly agree i mean rebecca's work is absolutely phenomenal i'm really excited about kind of how the sound and the visual will come together to create something as as one piece. I think the installation is going to be phenomenal, not only for you, but for Rebecca as well. And and indeed, everyone that's been involved in it. Yeah, it's um, it's actually been a real pleasure and an honour to be working with lots of different people from around Milton Keynes. We've had participants from the YMCA, from Herb Farm in Wolverton, 
the Sikh Gurdwara, the Buddhist temple, as well as individuals like John Bailey, who's an engineer for Yamaha. Lots of different young people from around around Milton Keynes who have made incredible contributions because also just to finish that there is actually two tracks of audio on this installation. The first one is the soundscapes, but then the second one also through the headphones people can experience listening to people's conversations around nature, their involvement, living in Milton Keynes. So it really has been a, a community effort. You can go and witness and be part of this specially commissioned installation from July the 14th to July the 30th at Middleton Hall at Centre MK, where they're also running free garland making sessions too. You can donate flowers, seeds, cones and leaves at Middleton Hall through until July the 12th. And Rebecca Louise will be hosting a free talk on July the 13th at 4.30 in Middleton Hall alongside Carla Benza and Jess Hughes from the Open University. More information about this event and all the events at the festival to be found at ifmiltonkeens.org. And hopefully this podcast will have been enough to whet your appetite for the whole festival. You're really in for a treat with If Milton Keynes International Festival, whether you're from Milton Keynes, from nearby, or if you've never actually visited the city, there'll be something for everyone. As I've been saying, many of the events are free, and this is a real opportunity to immerse yourself in world-class street entertainment, art, performance, music, dance, well, everything at one of the UK's finest festivals. If you've enjoyed this episode of Turn Up The Volume, seek out our previous episodes where I speak to great artists who've been performing at the stables, And also click on follow in your podcast app. That means you'll be notified of all future episodes of Turn Up The Volume. And while you're there, perhaps leave us a review. It really, really does help to get the word out there. Next month, I'll be bringing you more from the stables itself as things revert back to relatively normal life after the festival. But for now, from Turn Up The Volume, from the stables in Milton Keynes, it's goodbye from me. (laughs) 